starting now in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and uh, Jonah and Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're just so amazed at the reality that not only did you come to this earth, Jesus, and display what true love is in in your life, but you also displayed it in your death on the cross. And beyond that, you corroborated your claims to be God and to be uh, the perfect sacrifice for our sins by overcoming sin, overcoming death, and raising back to life, exiting that tomb. Um, God, we're so grateful that as we stand here today and as we pray, we are not praying to an empty room. We're not praying to the roof. We're praying to a God who is alive, who has overcome death and who is living right now and is with us present in spirit and, um, and is, is living in heaven. And so we're so grateful for that reality. And today, as we begin to unpack the, the amazing truths that come from this historical event that has happened Um, your resurrection from the dead. Jesus, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds, help us to better be able to defend this reality to our friends and our neighbors uh, who maybe don't believe it. And for those who are in here today who may be skeptical, maybe uh, concerned about this claim and they have questions about it, that you would help clarify those questions in their mind and you would just make this a sweet time of learning from your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. And as you do, please welcome Lenny Esposito. Well, thank you all so much. I'm very excited to be here. Glad to uh, join you this morning. Um, Really a blessing. And I've known Pastor Daniel and Rob and Ryan just for many years and truly excited to be here. Um, As an apologist, as someone who defends the faith, one of the things that I do is deal a lot in details, Right? you got to deal in the details, and even in the details of Scripture. You notice that even in our Scripture reading, there were a lot of names. Joseph, and James, and Joanna, and Mary, and Mary again, and Mary again. And, um, but details are important, and when you read the Scriptures, you'll find that you can learn things 
about uh, even the gospel writers and, and, and the authors of the books of the Bible that you didn't know before. For example, did you know that the Apostle Paul was a Southerner? Well, it's very clear. You, you open up the Bible and you see he starts every letter, grace and peace be to y'all. So, but we know he wasn't from Texas. And why is that? Because he writes, whatever state I find myself, therein I am content. Could not have been a Texan. Okay, um, the details, by the way, if you, if you do want to follow anything I do, I'm across social media, put out a lot of articles, a whole lot of different stuff, but you can, you can catch me on any one of those channels and stay in touch. Okay, we're in the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke makes some very specific claims about these details that he's writing about. At the very beginning of his gospel, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those in, from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully, notice he's investigating, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth of the things you have been taught. That's a pretty big claim. He's claiming that he interviewed eyewitnesses, that this is eyewitness testimony, that he's trying to put it down in exact order so that you would understand these things. Now, when we look at our scripture reading, we can see some of these details. Look at his details about the resurrection. He talks about Joseph, a specific guy, who's from a specific town, Arimathea. He says that this specific guy was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was, he was part of the ruling class at that time. Uh, he mentions Pilate, who we know is a real historic figure. By the way, there were some doubts about that up until, say, 1961. People said that Pilate didn't exist until they found a stone in Caesarea Maritima with his name on it. Then it was pretty hard to discount him. Um, they said, Luke says that Jesus was laid in a new grave. Okay? Said it was the day before the Sabbath. Said that there was a stone that had covered the tomb that had been rolled away when the women came back early Sunday morning. She saw two men in white, said Peter ran to the tomb and found linen cloths still there, burial cloths, but no Jesus. Pretty specific details. This is what you would call arguing from the evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead because nobody actually saw the resurrection event we see the aftermath of the resurrection event. Now, even though this is very detailed, that doesn't prove that it's true, right? Anyone who's read J.R.R. Tolkien can tell you details can exist in a fantasy genre. Because Tolkien created two languages, he had calendars, he had different events. Tolkien was incredibly detailed. And thus, people have doubted the resurrection accounts and skeptics have questioned the resurrection accounts 
and claim that they aren't what Luke claims they are. Well, it strikes me that we only have three options when we start looking at the resurrection. It could be, number one, that they were a forgery. They were an intentional misleading by a person or a group of people trying to write something so that others would follow them. Could be a forgery. Our second option is that it could be a fable, a fairy tale. It was a legend that grew up over time that people wanted to have happen, right? Kind of like seeing Elvis at the 7-Eleven. You know, you get that, oh, oh, there he is. Hey, let's go get his autograph. And usually it's just some guy with a really bad haircut and long sideburns saying, get away from me. Um, but, but it could be a fable, either intentional or unintentional, just kind of grew into this myth. Or it could be eyewitness testimony. It could be fact. So those are our three options. Is it a fraud? Is it a fable? Or is it fact, as Luke claims it is? Well, that's what I want to look at today. What is the evidence that we have? And we have a lot of actually really good evidence that puts it outside of the camp of fraud and outside of the camp of fable. And some of it is actually pretty darn new, stuff you haven't heard before. And I want to go through that first. Now, here's option one, um, that the, the biblical resurrection accounts and the Gospels in general are frauds. They're, right, And this is Bart Ehrman, professor of New Testament in North Carolina, a very famous skeptic. He was an ex-evangelical, is how he puts it. Um, but this is one of his charges. He says, quote, many of the books of the New Testament were written by people who lied about their identity, claiming to be famous apostles, Peter, Paul, or James, knowing full well they were someone else. In modern parlance, that is a lie, and a book written by someone who lies about his identity is a forgery. That's Bart Ehrman's claim. Uh, so how do we test for this? How do we figure this out? Well, let's look a little bit at what the, the evidence is for the Bible. Let's look at these details. First of all, it helps you to understand when the Gospels were written, okay? We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them were written in Koine Greek, and all of them were written in the first century. All of them were written 35 to 65 years after the events that they portrayed. So if we say Jesus died in, say, A.D. 30, you know, we're talking about the first Gospel is somewhere A.D. 60, 65, somewhere in that range, uh, possibly to A.D. 95. Nobody dates the Gospels past A.D. 95. We have a fragment of the Gospel of John from A.D. 125, so, and we know that that's a copy, so it had to have been written well before then. So every, all of the, even the most skeptical scholars will say that all of the Gospels were written in the first century. Maybe they push it a little later than others, um, but that's okay. Uh, the church tradition holds that Matthew was written in Judea, that Mark was written in Rome, that Luke wrote his gospel in Antioch or Achaia, and that John was written in uh, Turkey or Ephesus or Asia Minor. Um, <clears throat> mainstream, mainstream scholars, non-evangelicals, think 
differently. They think that um, Matthew was written in Syria, Mark probably written in Syria, Luke in Rome, John in Palestine, Syria, and then Asia Minor. Uh, Bart Ehrman believes that none of the Gospels were written in Palestine at all, okay? All outside in different countries, in different areas, outside of the Jewish uh, homeland, if you will. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important when you start looking at these names that are used in the gospel accounts. Remember, what we're trying to do is we're trying to establish whether this is forgery or not. And can someone forge documents with specific details in it? That's our goal. Now, what I've found is remembering names is tough. And you can ask my wife, first names are not my best skill. Usually when I meet you, I'll get your name, and usually I'll remember the first letter. So I met Bob. I can still say Bob. But, but a week from now, I may call you Benny. <laughs> it's just a thing, or, or Mariah, or, uh, you know, right, if I say it more than once, see, it helps. But I will get the first letter, and she teases me mercilessly, because this is what I do. She, who's Miriam? Who are you talking about? You know, the girl we met at church. Oh, you mean Mariah. Oh, yeah, that was right. Yeah. So, so this, this is, th that's my crutch. I, I confess it to you uh, freely. But remembering names is tough. Why? Because they don't, names don't have any meaning other than the person to whom they're connected, right? It, 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 John or Jonas, that doesn't mean anything by itself to our minds. It's just anybody can be named Tom. How do we know you're named Tom? Because you tell me. But it doesn't, I have to do some work to associate those things. But if remembering names is tough, inventing names is tougher. What do I mean by that? Well, again, we're talking about specifics and in detail, right? If I'm writing a story about 1990s Southern California 20-year-olds, I'm probably going to cast the top two characters as Jennifer and Jason. Okay, why is that? Remember the Jennifer and Jason thing? Everybody was named Jennifer and Jason at some point in time. Um, what name would you give a character, though, in the 1980s? What were the, what were the popular names in the 1980s? You'd have to look at 1960 to see what a 20-year-old in 1980 would look like, right? What the popular names were. It's a little tougher to invent names for a character in the 1980s that are um, reasonable. Now, if you think that's tough, what about 1960s Paris? Say you're setting your story in 1960s Paris. What names would you give the characters? Usually people say, well, you know, Jacques and Claude. Well, I don't know where Jacques and Claude, I mean, that was, that's, the, that's the kind of the trite idea. That's the easy thing to say, but were Jacques and Claude popular names in 1960 Paris? I have no idea. If the gospel writers were inventing these stories, maybe we can look at the names and see how it plays out. Now, this kind of examination has not been 
uh, available to us until fairly recently with the advent of supercomputers. We have a lady, and this is a, a scholar named Tal Ilian. She put out uh, a big fat book called The Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity. And what she did uh, was she looked at uh, four different primary sources to find out what names were going on in Palestine from 330 BC to 200 AD, okay? And here's what she looked at. She looked at the Gospels. That was one source where she looked at all the names. She also looked at the writings of Josephus, because he gives a lot of detail about historical issues. Uh, by far the biggest group of names that she got, though, were from that third thing there. That's called an ossuary. That's a Jewish burial box, okay? It's a bone box. And uh, they were only pretty much used from, say, 100 BC to 60 or to 70 AD. So it's a very short span of time that the Jews would... What happens is it's, it, it's tough to... Uh, create a lot of graves. It's expensive. You've got to dig into the hillside. So what they would do is they would set the body in the grave. They would let it decompose. Then after a year, they would go back in. They'd put the bones in one of these bone boxes, and they'd put it up on a shelf, and now you can use the grave for a second and third family member, things like that. Um, so that's what these things are, and they would have the person's name ascribed on this. So it's a, kind of like a coffin, if you will. That's by far where most of the names came from, were the names ascribed to these bone boxes. And then she looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So she's got the four different areas, and she compiled them all, and she did computer tests and ran uh, the statistics on them. And here's what she found. Now, before we go to that, I want to give you a, 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 a comparative. In 2010, these were, this is according to uh, Social Security, because everybody gets a Social Security card when they're born. So this is the U.S. government, and you can go to the Social Security website and find out for any specific year. You can look up your year, find out how popular your name is. It's kind of cool. This is the most popular set of names in 2010 for the United States. Jacob is number one with 1% 1 of all boys being named Jacob. Isabel was 1.17% of all females. And there you see Jacob, Ethan, Michael, Jaden, William, Alexander, Noah, Daniel, Aiden, and Anthony, okay? That was 2010. I want to show you how, how big of a difference this is. However, if you look at 1980, things change. Michael is number one. You notice that there's no Aiden, there's no Ethan, there's no, you know, Noah or you, you can see that the names are all different other than Michael and Jason. Those are the only two that have kind of, well, no, there was no Jason even in 2010. So there's only one of the 10 names that was popular in 2010 is popular in 1980. The girls have it even worse. If I look at these from 1980 and I highlight two of them, let's just pick Matthew and Heather because they're kind of common names. And we look at their frequency by rank from 1960, Matthew was 61. Matthew's been a perennial guy. You can see he was 61st in popularity in 1960, 24th in 1970. Number six in 1980. 1980 was the pinnacle for both these, these folks. Six and six. Uh, three, third in 1990, third in 2000. Then it starts dropping again in 2010. Less and less people are naming their children Matthew. Heather, wide swing. 
1960. Nobody was naming their kid Heather in 1960. 1970, 19, 1980, it jumps to six. Now, why do you think that is? There's one reason Heather gets real popular by 1980. It's called Charlie's Angels. Heather Locklear, right? And Heather, uh, you, 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 have, you have the, matter of fact, if you look at these in the 1990s, Ross becomes a popular name out of nowhere because people will name their kids after television figures that they like. But then Heather drops like a rock again, right? 685 in 2010. So if you're writing a story about something happening today and you name the character Heather, it's going to be a pretty odd name. Anyway, you get the idea. You get the, you get the point. Okay, so in Palestine, it's a little different. They didn't use nearly as many names. They, they had a lot of family names. Matter of fact, if you remember uh, uh, when John the Baptist was to, to be named, right? And, and she said, we're going to call him John. And they went to Eliezer the priest. They said, you can't call him John. Nobody in your family's named John. And he wrote on the scroll, his name will be John on the slate. And that's what allowed him to speak again, if you remember the, the gospel account. Um, so you named af after your family. You tend to use family names, things like that. But here we have the totals that Tal Ilian came up with. The top name, Simon or Simeon. Uh, it appears eight times in the New Testament, 29 times in Josephus, 59 times in the ossuaries, and 72 times in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then it goes down from there. Joseph, right? Uh, Josephus. Um, you have Judas, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus or Joshua, Ananias, Jonathan, Matthew, and uh, Menachem or Manayan. Uh, those are the lists and by order of popularity. Now look at, I want you to look at this chart and notice something. That when you take the other three all together, they pretty much fall in general order, right? Uh, the only difference, the ossuaries are a little bit inverted on Judas. Uh, but normally, Simon is the most popular of the ossuary. Simon is the most popular of Josephus. Simon is the most popular in Dead Sea Scrolls. Guess what? In the New Testament, it matches exactly. In other words, the frequency of the use of the name in the New Testament, not even talking about simply the major characters, but the minor characters. Like when you say, you know, Mary, the mother of James. That's a minor, right? So... So the frequency that these people's names are appearing in the New Testament matches what we can tell the actual usage of those names were historically. That's a pretty good trick. Here's, here's the way it uh, looks from an uh, overall perspective. The top two male names, Simon and Joseph, appear in the Gospel and the Acts about 18.2% of the time. They appear in all of the other areas of Israeli archaeology 15.6% of the time. That's a really close parallel. Again, remember, we're trying to say somebody forged these documents. And they forged these documents by getting the percentage of times you mention these guys right within three percentage points of actual history in first century Palestine where they didn't have computers and they didn't take those kinds of surveys. If you look at the top nine male names that appear in the New Testament versus, it's 
nearly identical, right? Take a margin of error into account, and it's 40% across the board. The top two female names, now female names are a little tougher because uh, women's names, 25, full 25% of women's names in, um, in Palestine were Mary. Literally, one out of four women was Mary. So there were a lot of Marys. There were Marys falling all over the place. So it's, it's hard to make this distinction as specific when you're talking about women's names, but still, when we compare them, the top two female names, Mary and Salome, they appear 38.9% times in the Gospel and Acts and 28.6% times across all of the other Jewish historical records. That's still pretty good. Top nine female names, a little bit more diversion, possibly because the Gospels and the Acts don't talk a lot about women, right? The 12 apostles were the main characters. So um, you see a little bit more divergence. But still, you're not out of the ballpark. How do you do this? Remember what I told you. Imagine writing a story about 1960s Paris and getting the top nine names, 41% to 40%. Think about that. Top nine names. Is that a forgery? Or is this evidence to show maybe this is history? Maybe these are real people because they keep showing up in the right percentages. And I don't want you to think that it was just luck. Remember the other claim that most all of these scriptures were written outside of Palestine. Now we can go back to Tal Ilion and take a look. It turns out that when you look at the names of the prominent names in Palestine, we talked about Simon, Simeon, Joseph, and such. Jewish communities outside of Palestine had a radically different way of naming people. They talked about people with their political background, so they would point to the Maccabees, they would look for the, you know, they were, they were looking to make Israel great again. They, you know, they were, they, were, they were patriots and that kind of thing. So they would have Eleazar and Sabbatias was uh, approximately, used, uh, uh, it was number three in Palestine, but it was number one in Egypt, Eleazar. Sabbatias is number two outside of Palestine, but it was 68th inside Palestine. Joseph was there. Dostheus, Pappas, Ptolemaeus, Samuel. So there's the top six in Egypt. Very, very dissimilar to the top six inside Palestine. So again, if you're talking about a guy who's writing in another country, he, and he even knows a Jewish community in the other country, he's probably going to use these names, the Egyptian versions, as opposed to the Palestinian ones. It's really hard to believe that these guys manufactured these accounts and did so with precision that would rival anything that you would look at today. Do you see where I'm going? Stories are easy. Character traits are easy. Names are not easy to just manufacture and get right. This leads scholar Richard Bauckham to say, quote, the names of Palestinian Jews in the Gospel and Acts coincide very closely with the names of the general population of Jewish Palestine in this period, but not to the names of the Jews in the diaspora. In this light, it becomes very unlikely that those in the Gospels are late accreditations to the tradition. In other words, they didn't make them up. 
Now, here's what I want you to think about. If the Gospels have correctly got the detail of the hardest things to remember, these names, correct, wouldn't it follow that it got the other stuff right as well? Now, this isn't the only piece of evidence we hang the Gospel accounts on. There are other reasons to discount fraud. Number one, it gets other historical details right. We've done archaeology. Like I said, the pilot, uh, um, you look at uh, different characters, uh, that we've found uh, in the gospel accounts. Uh, the fact that the Pool of Siloam existed, that there's five porticos, you know, and when they, they, five, that doesn't make sense. You put one on each corner, that's four. But then they do the archeology, span they dig it up, and sure enough, there's five. So there's, there's other historical additions, details, right? They use embarrassing stories, okay? In other words, when you're, when you're trying to start a church and if Peter's going to be like one of your head guys, you don't have him running like a coward and denying Christ. That's, that's kind of not a thing. If you're a Jewish community and you really want to make an impression, you don't have the women be the one to testify because a woman's um, testimony really wasn't even allowed in a court of law. Right? It, it, made, it, it makes you look bad. The fact that they were using stuff that makes you look bad lends itself to uh, being uh, more likely historical. It's attested through multiple sources. We have many different uh, accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And it's attested to by non-biblical sources. Uh, Tacitus talks of Jesus. Uh, you, you, there's, uh, I think, up to 17 non-biblical ancient sources that talk of Jesus as uh, being at least put to death on the cross. Okay, so fraud probably isn't a live option. But wait, what if it's fable? What if like these people were real? What if Jesus actually existed? But the resurrection didn't really happen the way it, it, it said it did. That, that the idea that he rose from the dead is like the Elvis sighting, that it grew out of, you know, hope. How can we know that this is history and not fantasy? Well, John Dominic Crossan thinks it's fantasy. Um, that's him. He was a member of the Jesus Seminar. And his, this is what he said. He goes, Jesus was probably buried in a shallow grave, and his body was eaten by dogs. That's kind of what he thought happened. Well, let's take a look at this, knowing what we know now, and see how the biblical accounts match up to history in other sources, right? We all... We all study our history in high school. Anybody know who this is? This is a very famous guy you probably have all heard of. His name is Alexander the Great, right? Conquered the known world. Father Philip of Macedon swept across everything, was one who overthrew the Medes and the Persians and all of that. Here's how we know what Alexander... Does anybody ever go to a history class where someone doubts Alexander the Great or what he did? Pretty much not. Here's what we know from Alexander the Great's history. We know he was born in 356 BC. We know that he undertook a military campaign that lasted about 11 years of his life. Matter of fact, the, the um, rumor goes that after, at the end of all of this, he threw himself on his bed weeping because there were no worlds left for him to conquer. Um, we knew that he died at the age of 31 in 323 BC. Okay, how do we know these facts? Well, we know them from some historical sources. The earliest record we have of Alexander is Dior, Diodorus, who is writing in the first century BC. 
So he's the earliest guy that we have that records the exploits of Alexander the Great. But the main history, the most detail we get, are from a couple of other guys, Arian and Plutarch, who are both recognized ancient historians. They're writing in the second century AD. But wait, Alexander was born in 356 BC and he died in 323 BC. Do you know what that means? That means that there is a good 500 year span between the time of Plutarch's writing and when Alexander lived. 400 years to 500 years. That's a big, that's a big gap. Now let's look at the resurrection accounts. What do we have there? Well, Mark, like I said, was probably written somewhere between 55 to 58. We think Matthew and Luke, 59 to 62. John, AD 89 to 95, depending on who you talked about. And we've got another account. Don't dismiss 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3 through 5. I mean, yeah, well, 3 through 7, if you will. But 3 through 5 is the key port, portion. What does it say there? Remember, Paul writing says, I give unto you that which I first received. Right? That Christ was crucified for our sins, was buried under Pontius Pilate, Three days later, he rose again. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and then to about 500 brethren, some of whom have fallen asleep, but some are still around. And then he, last of all, he appeared to me. Remember that portion of 1 Corinthians. That's, a, that's an account of the resurrection. That counts when we're talking about a, a source because it's coming from a different guy with a different detail. Now, this is important, this, this account. Why is this important? Because this is the earliest account we have of the resurrection in written form. Nobody doubts that Paul wrote this. 1 Corinthians is universally ascribed to Paul. And we know when it was written. Matter of fact, if we take a look at the timeline, here's the timeline. We'll say Jesus, again, crucified A.D. 30, okay? Luke is writing the book of Acts in A.D. 62 or so. That's, that's a reasonable conclusion. It doesn't talk about Paul's uh, release from Rome. It says he's going to Rome for the first time. So we're, we're assuming Luke is writing about A.D. 62. He says in the book of Acts, that Paul was visiting Corinth around A.D. 50. Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. So this is when Paul is giving. Remember, Paul says, I give unto you, remember when I gave unto you that which I first received. So Paul taught this lesson, 1 Corinthians 3 through 5. He taught it to them about A.D. 50. Okay? But he also says, I taught unto you that which I first received. Well, when did Paul receive that testimony? Well, there's a little thing called the Damascus Road experience. Paul's riding off to Damascus, right? Gets blinded. They take him off and they tutor him for three years. So Paul receives the resurrection story. Let's be conservative and push it at the end of that three years, say AD 36. But it was already around. They were already using it. And they were using it to teach Paul. That means that it had to have existed somewhere in this range right here between 33 and 35. 
Now let's compare Jesus crucified A.D. 30. The testimony of first, and by the way, most scholars recognize that 1 Corinthians 3 through 5, that's a creed. That's like the earliest creed of the church. That starts to grow and starts to be combined with um, a baptismal creed, and it eventually becomes the Nicene Creed. But when we look at the comparing of historical sources, Alexander the Great, the most detail we have is five centuries later. The earliest detail we have is three centuries later. And yet we accept this as history. Historical accounts of the resurrection. The most detail we have is 30 years later. And the earliest is maybe two years. Some guys will push it back to even six months that that creed formed. Right on top of the events that they describe. Now you tell me. If you're willing to trust the top column, are you willing to trust the bottom one? Which one do you think is more likely to have errors in it? Strikes me that fable, that the growth of this as a myth, there's simply no time. Right? It's like, it's like me talking about the 2016 presidential election and having an entire mythology built around it. There's just it was too big of an event and too many people are saying, you're nuts, that's not the way it happened. To believe that this is something rather than favor. So it can't be fraud and it can't be fable. What does that leave us with? And again, as Rob said this morning, um, Christianity is a very, very strange faith in that it puts itself out there, hangs itself on a thread and says, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. It has a test. If you've ever wanted to know whether Christianity is true, all you have to do is check out this test. And the test says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. There's Paul saying, hey, we're liars. If we testify against God that he raised Christ, when Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you're still in your sins. All of Christianity hung by this thread. All you got to do is snip the thread. Now, people over the time have recognized this. Simon Greenleaf, professor, uh, legal scholar, really created the rules of evidence that our courts still follow today, was challenged by some of his uh, students to say, why don't you apply your rules of evidence to the gospel accounts? Use the same criteria and see how that stacks up. Greenleaf, who was a skeptic, who was a non-believer, did so and came out a believer. Wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelists. Guy by the name of Frank Morrison, newspaper reporter in the 30s, did the same thing. Figured out that Christianity hangs on the thread of the resurrection. All I got to do is snip that thread. The whole thing will come crashing down. As much as he tried to, couldn't do so. Wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone, became a believer. Another reporter, Lee Strobel, same thing, sought out to disprove Christianity. Take took a look at all of the evidence, changed his mind, became a believer, case for Christ. And on and on it goes. When you look at the evidence openly and reasonably, what you find out is this is a thread made out of titanium. Paul can do this because he's not worried at all that it'll snip. It's actually 
fact. That's what we have. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. But praise be to God because the resurrection is real. Whether you look at something as inconsequential as the number of times the name Peter is used in the New Testament, or something as interesting as how quickly the believers were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead without the option to grow into a mythology, what you'll find is no matter how hard you try over and over again, the resurrection stands up to any objection that you, people can throw at it. So what we need to do is we need to pray because really the resistance of those who hold, don't hold to the resurrection is not logical. It's not evidential. It's spiritual. And that's what we're here to do. So as a church, I want you to be equipped in these things. I want you to be confident in your faith. Know that there are answers out there. And know that if God will open the door, you can lead others to Christ through this message. Let's pray. Father, you have given us so great a salvation. And you have given us a weight of evidence to show what you did by raising your son from the dead. How important it is to hold on to that faith and how our salvation hangs upon it. May you bless us now as we go forward with these things ringing in our ears, with a confidence building in our heart, knowing that what we believe is the real deal. And may we share that with those who need it so desperately in our fallen world. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.